I'm going to ask you if you'll open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 1. And I'd like to begin reading in verse 15 and read through verse, verse 17. 1 Timothy 1, beginning in verse 15, and I'll read through verse 17. This is what Paul wrote, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and this is the Word of God. This is the Bible. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason, I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. If someone didn't know the Christmas story, I don't think they would have ever been able to have conceived a story quite like it. If you're given the kind of scenario that follows as such, mankind is under the dominion of a dragon. Mankind is under the dominion of a murderer. Mankind is under the dominion of a thief that has come only to steal, kill, and destroy. Mankind lives in moral and spiritual darkness. And God wants to restore and rebuild a relationship with fallen mankind and adopt them into his family. I don't think there's anybody in their wildest imagination that would have come up with a story like the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, think about it for just a moment. The birth of Jesus is a miraculous story of a virginal con conception. Filled with dramatic encounters and supernatural interventions. Uh, we might have come up with a story like Star Wars or we might have come up with a story like Indiana Jones. But I don't think anyone would have come up with a story quite like the story of the incarnation of Jesus. It's such a beautiful story and it's such a beautiful season of the year. It's so good that God every year brings it back around to stir us afresh and to remind us anew of what he has done on our behalf in the sending of his beloved son. We love the Christmas story and we love the Christmas season. It's filled with the most beautiful and magnificent of music. You know, some of us are on that edge of society that begins listening to holiday music in October. Some of you, who probably are too embarrassed to say it, begin in July. But we typically begin in October. We love the Christmas music. We love the Christmas carols. We love the traditional Christmas songs. Songs like Away in a Manger, Silent Night, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And with all of the, all of the magnificent uh, and miraculous events that surround the Christmas story, with all of the music that fills the Christmas season, if we're not careful, we, we have a tendency to forget that Christmas is first and foremost, a divine invasion of planet Earth to bring about 
a rescue. It's a divine rescue. It's a rescue mission. It's a sinless Savior coming to redeem a fallen world. Again, I go back to the thought none of us could have dreamed it up. You put the best minds in the history of the world in a room and had them try to come up with a story about how God would redeem a wayward people for himself, no one would have come up with a story like the Christmas story where God's son would become a human being and would invade planet earth. That's exactly what Paul's talking about in these three verses of Scripture. In fact, if you'll give me the opportunity this morning, I'd like to take them line by line. In fact, phrase by phrase this morning and look at these three Scriptures, these three verses, and to unfold how they are pregnant with meaning relating to the Christmas story. I want you to notice with me in verse 15, in the very opening words, the Christmas story is a gospel story. The Christmas story is a reliable story. The Christmas story is a story to be trusted in. It's a story to be believed. Paul writes, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. In the book of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, what's often called the pastoral epistles, that little phrase, it's a trustworthy statement, appears five times. Nowhere else in the entire Bible. Nowhere else in the Bible does that little phrase, it is a trustworthy statement, appear outside of 1, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And what Paul is saying when he when he uses that statement, this is something you can build your life on. This is something you can bank on. This is something that you can believe in. And so he's about to say to us the Christmas story, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, it seems unbelievable. It seems far-fetched. It seems like a myth or fantasy. It is a genuine, actual, historical event that you can believe in. It deserves full acceptance. Well, what is this trustworthy statement? Look with me in the next line. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. To say that Christ Jesus came into the world is to say that he existed before he came into the world. If I come into a room, I didn't just begin to exist When I entered that room, I already existed before I entered the room. What Paul is saying is that Jesus Christ existed before he was conceived in the virgin's womb. Before he was conceived in Mary's womb by the work of the Holy Spirit, a virginal conception, Jesus Christ existed. John put it this way, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became what the word previously had not been. Jesus Christ eternally existed. John wrote just in words prior to what I just quoted to you. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. When Paul says that Jesus Christ came into the world. He's saying that Jesus existed 
before he was conceived. He didn't have a body, but he existed. He eternally existed. And so Paul wants us to understand that the event of Christmas is dramatic. It's phenomenal. It's spectacular. It it goes beyond our wildest imagination and conception that the eternal God who had not a body like man came into existence, not for the first time because he's always existed, but in the form of a human being. It's an unbelievable story. Uh, That same phrase that Jesus Christ came into the world implies that he was sent into the world. And in fact, the Bible is replete with with the idea that Jesus was on a divine mission. And the one who sent him is none other than God the Father. God the Father sent Jesus Christ into the world. That's where the Christmas story begins. It begins in eternity past. It begins before the creation of Adam and Eve. It begins before God spoke the world into existence. He had a plan to send his son to redeem for himself a people. The Christmas story is a rescue mission. And it it began in the mind of God. But notice he goes on to say in that very same phrase that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came into the world, to redeem and to save. Uh, We sometimes forget that that we are a people in need of rescue, that we are a people in need of a savior. But when you look at the world into which Jesus came, it gives us a a little bit of a better picture of our need for salvation. Let me read to you from Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. In Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 5, John takes us behind the scenes of what happened in Bethlehem. It's better than any any kind of of movie that has ever been created. To, To peer back in behind what was taking place on the physical stage was a dramatic battle. Listen to what John wrote in the book of Revelation, beginning in chapter 12, verse 1. The Bible says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. What an unbelievable picture of the birth of the Messiah. He's painted in apocalyptic terms, in an image and in figures of speech that the first century reader would have understood. Then he says in verse 3, Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman and was about to, who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. He's describing Satan as a dragon, one of the most fierce and diabolical and horrific of creatures in the mind of mankind. And he depicts Satan as a dragon ready to murder the Christ child. 
It's what happened when Herod the Great in Matthew chapter 2 murdered all of the babies. What, what you would have seen if you had lived in Bethlehem was the slaughter of infants. But if you had eyes to see into the real world of spiritual reality, you would have seen Satan behaving like a dragon, trying to murder God's beloved son and God acting providentially to protect his son and lead them away to Egypt. It says in verse 5, And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to heaven and to his throne. You see, Jesus Christ came into a world of sinners because we were in a desperate state. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. In fact, he said that about himself many times. He said, for instance, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He said in another instance, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. He said in another place that he did not come to judge the world, but he came to save the world. He came to reach out to the prodigal son or daughter. He came to speak to people like the woman at the well who had been married numerous times and was now living with someone out of wedlock. He had his reputation smeared by the religious leaders, or at least they thought they smeared his reputation, when they would say things like, he eats with tax collectors and sinners. That's exactly what he came to do. If he had a t-shirt, he would have said, friend of sinners, because that's the way that he lived. That's why he came to die, to be a friend of sinners. To say that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners is to highlight God's graciousness, his mercy, his kindness, his desire to save, because all of us need to be saved. Paul put it this way, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's nobody that is born okay with God. We are sinners by birth and sinners by choice. And we need a Savior. So when we think of that helpless baby born in a manger, we need to move beyond the manger to a cross and beyond the cross to an empty tomb and beyond an empty tomb to a reigning king. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. But notice the next line. It's, a, it's astonishing. In the very next line, Paul says, Among whom I am foremost of all. You have to ask yourself, was, was Paul just being humble? Or was Paul just trying to build up a, a fabulous uh, reputation as, as having been quite a scoundrel and, and is now redeemed and able to make a, make a good bit of money sharing his testimony? Or did he really actually believe this about himself? I think he genuinely, actually believed this about himself. You see, 
when the Spirit of God begins to work in a person's life and begins to shine the spotlight of God's holiness on their hearts, they see themselves for who they really are. They see themselves as a sinner in need of a Savior. They even have probably running through their minds, how could God save me as wicked as I am? You can tell people who aren't quite yet ready to give their heart and life to Jesus when they say, you know, I'm, I know I'm a sinner, but I'm not as bad as this person or that person. Uh, I've never cheated on my wife. I've never abused my children. I, I've never been in a drunken stupor and passed out on my front lawn. That's a person who doesn't quite yet get what the gospel is all about. When you get the gospel, you don't look at the sin of others and compare yourself to them. You look at your own sin and you compare yourself to God. And many, many throughout history, and maybe hundreds in this room have said, I'm the worst of the lot. I'm a despicable human being. Oh, I pay my taxes and love my children and have been faithful to my wife and work hard at my job and am a, a stalwart in my community. But I'm a despicable person in the depths of my soul. There is none righteous. No, not one. And that's what Paul thought about himself, although he was a rabbi, although he lived meticulously according to the rabbinical traditions and to the Old Testament law. He crossed every T, dotted every I. He saw himself as the chief of sinners. And the reason that he says this is in verse 16, so that he can give us hope. So that we would have hope that God's grace could reach even to us. Notice what he says. Yet for this reason, I found mercy. And mercy is what we need. God's unmerited favor. God's graciousness and compassion on the undeserving. Yet for this reason, I found mercy. So that in me, as the foremost, the foremost sinner, the foremost hypocrite, when people look at me and the fact that God saved me, that Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul said, look at me as diabolical and despicable and disgusting of a human being as I was. If God would save me, God can save you. If God can change me, God can change you. If God can change me from, a, from this self-righteous bigot, this racist of a man who thought that those outside of Judaism were less of a created person than he. He can save you and he can save me. This is a gospel to believe in. This is a person to believe in. If God can save him, God can save you. If God can save me, God can save you. I was, I was in utter, absolute, moral, and spiritual darkness at 19 years of age. I didn't know Genesis from Revelation. I couldn't have given you a single one of the Ten Commandments. 
I had no concept of right and wrong, really. And then as a 19-year-old young man traveling in a truck in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and God whispered in my ear, seek God, you could find life. Oh, I, I knew it wasn't oral, but it was real. And God began to lovingly draw me to himself, but the way that he did it was by showing me what kind of person I was. I would sometimes argue with him in my own mind, well, you know, I'm not as bad as this person or that person. I, I, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to do this or that or go here or go there. But that's the way God saves us. He saves us by showing us how truly wicked we really are apart from him. And until you come to grips with that, you're not ready for the gospel message. So Paul says that he found mercy so that he could be an example, a beautiful example, to all who feel about themselves the way that Paul felt about himself in order that God's perfect patience could be demonstrated and that people would believe in him and the gospel message and receive eternal life. Let me ask you this morning, have you believed in him for eternal life? Have you been saved? I'm not asking have you been baptized because baptism has never saved a single person. I'm not asking are you a member of a church because many church members will go to hell forever because they're basing their eternal existence on church membership or water baptism. I'm not asking if you're a hard-working employee, a wonderful mother, or a good provider. I'm not asking are you a Democrat or a Republican. I'm asking you, have you committed your life to Jesus Christ? And if you have, do you live like it? If you've committed your life to Christ, do you live like it? If you've been redeemed by the shed blood of God's only Son, do you live like it? Do you have a heart for him, a passion for him, a longing for him, a desire to make him known among the nations, a desire to live a holy life, not to be a good spouse, but a holy spouse, not to be a good parent, but a godly parent? Have you believed in him for eternal life? Hundreds of us in here can say with, with absolute confidence, I have. And to those of us who can, we join with the Apostle Paul in this, in this last verse. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That is, he, he describes the sending of Christ. He describes his own sinful condition and his, and his own salvation. And after he says who would believe in him for eternal life, it's like there's something that wells up inside of him. It's a doxology. A beautiful, magnificent 
explosion of love. Now to the king. To refer to God as king is to say that he sits on heaven's throne. And he accomplishes all of his holy will among the hosts of heaven and the inhabitants of earth. He is the king. To say that he is eternal is to say he has no beginning. To say that he is immortal is to say that he has no end. To say that he is invisible is to say that he is real, but we can't see him with the physical eye. He's the only God. There are no other gods. There's not a God of Jehovah Witness. There's not a God of Mormonism. There's not a God of Islam. There's only one God that exists who sits on heaven's throne. He is God the Father, and we know him as Father, Son, and Spirit. He's the only God that exists. And so he says, to this God, this one triune God, this God that has initiated the opportunity of salvation for all people, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So be it. And so, during this Christmas season, maybe in just a moment when we stand and and we sing as we get ready to to finish up this morning. You'll leave your Bible open to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And in the quietness of your heart or maybe even speaking it out loud, if you know him, you might say to him, now to you, the eternal, immortal, invisible, only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And as we initiate this Christmas Eve day, You'll begin that way. But there are many here today who have not accepted this reliable, trustworthy statement that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. If you haven't, why not? What would keep you from giving your life to Jesus Christ and experiencing forgiveness of sin, being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and being conformed into the image of Jesus as he prepares us for eternity with him. What would keep you? You know, Jesus once asked a crowd, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? There are a lot of answers that people would give if they were honest. I don't want to give up my freedom. I I don't want to give up my friends. I don't want to give up my relationships. I don't want to give up my own plans. But think about, think about the foolishness of that for just a moment. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? There's nothing more important to you than your eternal, eternity. And so there are some here today that maybe during our time, of, our time of commitment, you would come down and speak to one of our pastors and just say, you know, I'd like to talk to someone today about eternal life, the kind of life Pastor Cook mentioned. There are others here that, hey, we would love to have you come down and say to us, I'm ready to join on. 120 some members, 125 new members this last year. Uh, I'd, like to, I'd like to finish out that number and, and bring it closer to 130. I, I'm, we're ready to, I'm ready to join. I'm ready to become a part. And we would love to, love to talk with you about that this morning. I'm going to ask you if you'll stand. I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. Our worship pastor is going to come. We're going to sing together. And
couple of announcements. We'll be finished up this morning, but uh, this is an important moment. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the one true God, the only true God. And we ask you in these final moments to glorify yourself among your people and glorify yourself in the hearts of those who have been looking for you. They just haven't even known that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.